We began to look last week at the Gospel of Luke, the first volume in Luke's uh, two-volume work where this Gentile doctor, this Gentile physician, a cultured man, an educated man, wrote to his dear friend Theophilus what he called a logical, orderly account of the things that have taken place. Those things being what? The things of Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his teaching, his healing, his ministry, his death, and his resurrection. The reality that Jesus Christ is the world's true Lord. He wrote to Theophilus because Theophilus was one who had been taught the things of the faith, but he needed to be encouraged, needed to be strengthened in the things of Christ, the things of salvation, and the things of the kingdom of God. This morning, we are picking up with the story of the promise of the birth of John the Baptist, the precursor, the forerunner to Jesus, and his, you might say, quite improbable or evenly, seemingly impossible birth to, by his aged parents, the faithful couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Friends, let's turn our hearts, our minds, our attention to God's Word, Luke chapter 1 beginning at verse 5 and reading down to verse 25. Friends, this is the very word of the Lord. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his, at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. 
After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. One of Evie and Mai's favorite trips we ever took, it was about 23 years ago, and it was a missions trip we took to Ireland to visit. It was with, they were known as World Harvest then, they're now known as Surge. Our missionary Mark and Melissa Peach, they serve in this place in Dublin with Surge today. And we went there to basically go alongside and to get to know, pray with, pray for, support the missionaries who were all planting churches in and around the city of Dublin. Besides getting to pray, worship, and spend time with the missionaries, we also got to tour some and do some touristy type things. One of these was a trip to Trinity College, one of the leading colleges in Ireland. And one of the most famous exhibits in Trinity College, I don't know if any of you have ever been before, I see some hands going up, so they know where I'm going with this, is the famous Book of Kells. A manuscript of the Gospels written around A.D. 800, and it's a Gospel book in Latin of the four Gospels. Now, one of the interesting things about this is that the people who arranged the exhibition don't let the people, tourists like us, go in and see the Gospels right away. You have to go past several other books, building up your anticipation before you get to the real treasure. And I loved how one scholar put it. He said, by the time you reach the heart of the ex exhibition, you've already thought your way back to the world of early Celtic Christianity, to the monks who spent years of their lifespans painstakingly copying out parts of the Bible and lavishly decorating it. You are now ready to appreciate the main course. I can't help but think that Luke is doing something very similar here with his infancy narrative in Luke chapters 1 and 2. I should be able to ask you, right, who's the hero of the story? And we should all be able to say, okay, I guess I'm serious about that nap then. <laughs> let's, let's do, the live stream is laughing at us right now. The hero of the story is Jesus. But you know, and this is the skill, Luke says I'm writing an orderly account. Jesus is not mentioned until verse 31. 30 verses go by before you get to even the name of Jesus. You hear first about Mary's extraordinary preg pregnancy. Before even that, Luke introduces us to this couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, an ordinary couple doing their ordinary duty, going about their everyday lives, part of the faithful remnant of Israel. They're simply doing what they do, living their lives faithfully. And so what is Luke doing? He is preparing our hearts and our minds for the true hero of the story, the true focus of the story, who is Jesus, the treasure and fulfillment of every promise, every purpose of the Old Testament. I've said it before, you will hear me say it again and again, all of the promises of God are yes 
and amen in Jesus Christ. Every promise from the past has its focal point in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so this text that we're looking at, this story, this narrative reminds us that in the face of seemingly impossible circumstances, even while we tend to not believe God and tend to push Him away, God's promise will move forward, God's purposes will stand. What is the Holy Spirit teaching us from this particular text? What does He want us to take away from this? Let me go over two things with you. First of all, God fulfills His promise despite the seemingly impossible. And second, God fulfills His promise despite our unbelief. God will do what God will do no matter what circumstances look like. And God will do what God will do whether we want to get on board or not. Let's take a look. First of all, you've got to love the human drama involved in this story. The text begins in the days of Herod, king of Judea. There was a priest named Zechariah. He was part of the division of Abiah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, meaning they were in a right relationship with God. This is, they were part of that faithful remnant. Their status before God was that they were justified. And they lived it out. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And here comes the human drama. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. And so here you have an older couple well past childbearing age, and we will find out as we progress through the story that they are going to have a son. Now, it's interesting. We were talking about this text at our session meeting the other night, and Travis, I'm going to call out Travis here a little bit, made a great point in terms of things. He said, look, they're an ordinary couple. And it was interesting that if you look at the history of this, there had been no word from God no revelation from God for 400 years. That's a long time. I mean, think about our past. You're going beyond going past to the founding of this country. and th Think about 400 years ago. 400 years and complete silence from God. And yet, here's this couple faithfully doing what? Taking their turn in the temple, going into the city when it's their time, serving God, doing their duties as a priest, and verse 7 tells us they had no child. And they had no child for the particular reason that Elizabeth was barren. Now we need to understand something very, very important here. This is a culture where childless women were mocked. This is a source of great shame for Elizabeth. Which is why Elizabeth's reaction at the end of the story is so pertinent and so incredible. In verse 25, she says, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Do you know what salvation is? Salvation is not an idea. A salva salvation is a person, namely God, one God in three persons, looking personally at you and loving you. Salvation is relational. Salvation, see, think about something. I want you to think about something for 
a second. We all deal with issues of shame. What is your source of shame? What is your source where you go, "Mm, I really don't like that about myself? Maybe I suppress it. I try to deny it. I try to push it aside, but it still controls me to some degree. One application is, do you know God looks at you and in Christ He takes your shame away? Elizabeth's reaction is, He looked on me to take away my reproach among people. But getting there is not easy. As a matter of fact, it's seemingly an impossible situation. See, one application for us is, do you understand your own barrenness? Your own spiritual barrenness. Do we really know, fully understand? Jesus said it himself to the disciples in John chapter 15. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, it amazes me, functionally, I know we intellectually believe that. I'm asking us to look at our lives. I'm asking us to apply this for a second. Because if we really believe that, if we really understood that, we would do a whole lot more praying than we do planning. And I'm not throwing away planning. But if we really believed apart from Jesus, we were barren. That doesn't mean apart from Jesus, you have something to contribute. You've got some good ideas. Bring them to the table. No, apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. Your condition is one of barrenness. You bring nothing but your own sinfulness to the table. I'm not sure how much we understand spiritual dynamics in our own hearts. And then verse 8, it says, So now while he's serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Here he is, ordinary man being faithful. And it says, And there appeared to him. Again, don't you love how Luke tells the story? There appeared to him, just suddenly, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. Again, I love these parts of the scripture because that's why I love the narratives and the gospels. Because there's part of me that goes, of course. If I'm standing up here preaching and all of a sudden you people, you all start saying to me, take a look to your right. And the angel Gabriel shows up. This is not how modern art depicts it. Guess what I'm doing? And I bet you you're joining me. We're hitting the dirt. Even some of us with bad hips and bad knees, we're hitting the dirt. Luke's writing an orderly account. But look at the angel. He comes alongside and he says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. You're going to give him the name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. The point about him not drinking wine or strong drink that comes out of the Old Testament and a vow that was taken by a group called the Nazarites. They would not drink strong drink. And then he says he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit of and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people 
prepared. So here's an angel appearing to him with some good news to share. Good news is the word for gospel. The gospel is beginning now. The angel Gabriel has been sent to be a herald, a messenger, and to proclaim this good news, this announcement. Zechariah, of course, is struck with terror. He was afraid, and the angel responds, do not fear. And he talks about the greatness. The son will be in fulfillment of the biblical promises of God. The promises of the Old Testament said someone is going to come to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah. The Old Testament promised that the prophet Elijah would return one day to get the people ready for God's visitation, for love to come down in the flesh. And John is that arrival. John is that the beginning of that visitation. He is the precursor, saying the time is at hand. The time is now. Let's prepare for the way of the Lord. These promises, did you notice something that sounded similar in this story? Sounds an awful lot like the story of Abraham and Sarah, does it not? Being told they would have a child in their old age, the seemingly impossible, as Sarah was barren, Luke is saying, come on in. Let's get ready for the main event. This is, if you would, the appetizer. Which brings us to our next point. So God fulfills His promise, fulfills His purpose, no matter how impossible the situation and the circumstances look. But then second, God fulfills His promises no matter how you respond. God's purpose, God's promise, God's sovereignty is going to move forward whether we're on board or not. How does Zechariah respond? Just like Abraham, by the way. Remember Abraham's response back in Genesis 15? The Lord promises Abraham a son, an heir to be born to him when circumstances certainly seem impossible. And Abraham responds, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And now look at Zechariah's response, verse 18. Zechariah says to the angel, How shall I know this? Almost word for word. How am I to know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. By the way, I like the fact that Zechariah doesn't say, We're both old, or she's an old woman. You know, he's showing some good family skills here, isn't he? I'm an old man. She's only well advanced in years. He doesn't want to sleep in the doghouse tonight. While wow, he's not believing the promises of God, by the way. Good for Zechariah. And isn't this typical of us? See, I don't want to throw shade on Zechariah and Abraham. Because guess who else is just like Zechariah and Abraham? Me. Come on, I know you're getting the nap. That's a participatory sermon. So are you. Our response is the same way. We have to know. It has to make sense to us. It has to be logical to us and make sense according to our common sense. If the promise of God seems too out there... Wait a second. God, didn't you give me common sense? Hmm. Ask yourself. See, we're saying, no, I, I have faith. I have, do we? Ask yourself, do you do something if it doesn't make sense to you? 
You know, last week we had our grand reopening. A wonderful time of celebration. How much God has done. Does 2.0 make sense? In a lot of ways it doesn't. Let's be honest. It doesn't make sense. But we said from the beginning, and this quote from John Haggai, who says, we have to attempt something so impossible that unless God is in it, it is doomed to failure. See, what Zechariah is responding, he's responding according to logic. He says, look, I'm an old man. My wife has been through so much. She has endured so much pain. She's endured so much shame. She's endured so much mocking. There is no way. He's, you can even say he's being a loving husband. She's been through so much. I am not putting her through this again. This doesn't make sense. How can I know this? Zechariah's response makes perfect sense. But then look at what the angel Gabriel says. He's calling him to faith, but not a blind faith. It may not make sense, but it does have evidence. Because look what he says. He identifies himself. I am Gabriel. He says, I stand in the presence of God. God's power is upon me. I stand in close proximity to God. That's evidence. You can accept it, you can dismiss it, but there it is. And then he says, I was sent. I didn't come on my own initiative. I didn't wake up one morning as an angel and say, you know what? Time to head down to earth and talk to this guy who happens to be at the temple this morning. I was sent on a mission. I'm obeying the God who sent me. And I was spent, sent to give you a message, and that message is one of good news. It's gospel. And so now he says, you will be silent. And even though you don't believe, even though you're hesitant to believe these things, even though you're resistant and sticking with what makes sense rather than faith, the promise and the purpose is moving forward. God's purposes still move forward. These things will take place. They will be fulfilled in their time. And what are these things which we will be fulfilled in their time? Despite the impossible circumstances, despite our all-too-human response of unbelief, the gospel. The good news that a new era of salvation is here is breaking into the world. Love came down. Friends, this is the message of Advent. Light breaks into the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Even the darkness of my unbelief and your unbelief. I want you to notice something. Not only here, but throughout these infancy narratives. The presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the supernatural breaking into our natural world. God not giving up on humanity, but creating a new humanity. In verse 15, it says, John, Zechariah's son, will be filled with the Holy Spirit. When we get to verse 35, Mary will ask the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel responds, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. In verse 41, when Elizabeth hears the greeting of Mary, the baby, John, leaps in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
when Zechariah speaks again. When his tongue is loosened, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. What does he do? He proclaims the gospel. He prophesies. He speaks with a prophecy in the Holy Spirit. Michael Wilcock, one of the commentators on this passage, says, here, unmistakably, is another world breaking into this one. This is not an ordinary story. This is the life of heaven breaking and coming down to earth. This is the kingdom of God being inaugurated in the kingdom of the earth. This is light coming into the darkness, and darkness will not be able to overcome it. Why? Because it's being done in the power of the Holy Spirit. One writer says, are we prepared for God, and do we respond to his work through the one he sent to lead us to him? John will point the way. Do we take the path of sensing our need for God and of responding to the one who offers total and complete forgiveness to us? Are we humble before God, taking the path he calls us, or do we opt to go our own way? Friends, God is on the move. His promises, his purposes will move forward with or without us, whether it makes sense to us or not, I would love for us to be a church that sees utterly our need for the Holy Spirit, that cries out for the Holy Spirit to empower us, to anoint us, to fill us, that we would move in the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray.